We're going to delve into the subject of the imagination. Vitally important subject and one that has a lot of controversy connected to it, depending on what part of the church you relate to. One part of the church is so afraid of the imagination that it has thrown the baby out with the bathwater and treated the whole subject as occult. Another part of the church, and some would question whether this is really still truly church, the church, has so embraced everything that passes through the imagination that it becomes a replacement for Scripture. We're going to examine all of those things, but our main purpose for this study is to hopefully help people who are suffering. And if you've been in a lot of physical pain, you might want to argue this point, but I think pain in the mind, pain in the imagination, may be the worst kind there is. Of course, say that to somebody who's got a roaring toothache and they would argue it. But uh, if you've ever been around somebody whose mind is tormented with images or memories or pictures or concepts that they don't have the power to overthrow or, or untangle, and then add to that the possibility of a demonic power pressing it onto the soul to the point that the soul begins to crack, then you would understand why I would say that that kind of pain may be the worst there is. So let's jump into this and trust the Holy Spirit to help us sort it out. First question, what was... Adam's imagination like before the fall into sin. We usually don't think of that very much, do we? We tend to assume that he thought the same way we do. We think that, that he had all kinds of images and concepts rolling around inside his head and that he took various parts of them and strung them together in order to conceptualize the world around him. But the rabbis and the Jewish philosophers like Maimonides knew better than that. They understood from the Hebrew text that the unfallen mind would not have been divided like ours is, and so language would not have been full of nuance and symbol and metaphor. Uh, when Adam sees the animals God presents to him for him to name them, he names them. He names them what they are. His language directly correlates to what really is in front of him. There's no symbolic use of words to stand in for something else that the word represents. There's no vagueness of meaning. There's no, well, this is sort of like that. There's no poetic phrases like, my love is like a red, red rose. Unfallen creation would not have had or needed metaphors or symbols or poetry or any transfers of meaning. All things were what they were. And Adam's language would have reflected that fact, the straightforward reality, because his internal thought processes would not have needed to produce language that reflected anything vague. 
No symbols, no poetry, no metaphor, just facts. I don't mean just facts in the sense of being robotic, like, you know, uh, an inquisitor asking black and white questions, but just no no need to reconstruct the world out of broken pieces because there's no brokenness. And he's made in God's image and likeness. Now, what what does that mean, really? This could take us into an entire study all of its own. But for brevity's sake, let's just examine these two words briefly. Image and likeness. The Hebrew word for image, Salem, refers to our being the reflection of the Almighty in his power to rule, to form, and to bring order. Nowhere in the opening chapter of Genesis is God referred to by any other name than Elohim, meaning the ultimate force, ruler, and power in the universe, the creator. The reference to our being in his image, then, refers, in part at least, to our being a reflection of Elohim as a ruling, forming, ordering power. We're made like him in his image. Likeness, the word is damut in Hebrew, refers to our similarity to God. Now, again, this can become our total study if we don't watch it, so let me just mention that the Hebrew root word here for damut is seen in several words in this text. Dam is the root word, and you find it in Adam, or Adam. You find it in the word for likeness, damut, which I've already mentioned, which is loosely translated, one that is similar in kind. And also in the word for dust of the ground. Adam was made from the dust of the ground, and the word there is Adama. Now, when you take these three roots, dam, Adam, Damut, Adama, you begin to see a pattern that is very common in Hebrew where a root word is is uh, forming a family of words. And Dam in Hebrew is blood. So something is going on here, mysterious and important, uh, in reference to the creation of a physical world that is going to be united to the spirit world. This seems to strongly imply that God formed man as both a spiritual and in some undefinable way a physical reflection of God himself and made the earth from which Adam was taken as an integral part of the process. Now this forever unites the spirit realm with the physical realm, in the body of Adam himself. And this will become hugely important later on. But for now, see that the creation by the hand of Elohim, who is without image, has made man in his image. And Elohim, who has no likeness, has given man his own likeness. And even here, this Early in the story, there's this reflection of blood, but we'll have to lay that aside for now. Abraham Heschel said he would prefer that the Lord not refer to man as being in God's image and likeness, since God has forbidden any image of himself to be made otherwise. But respected 
commentaries on Heschel's statement point out that some respected scholars view this as not God creating man in his image, but as his image. That man is the physical reflection of God himself in a way that seems not to be able to be understood uh, while living only in this dimension. There's all kind of arguments, as always, you know, two Jews, three opinions. Now you begin to understand why that, that saying got started, two Jews, three opinions. I mean, they they can argue forever on these uh, minutiae and details of, of Hebrew texts, and they're not really minutiae. Sometimes they're very important distinctions, but when you're grappling with something as powerful and huge as these subjects are, it's only natural that you're going to have a wide variety of opinions. Now, you understand, that doesn't mean that we can never know the truth. It actually means that truth, if it is truth, is so large that you're not going to be able to comprehend it in a sound bite and just tie it up in a neat bow. And this is one of the things about Hebrew that is so distinct from Greek. Greek is more scientific in its precision. Hebrew is more poetic. The reasoning concepts of of Greek tend to shrink things down to a settled definition. Hebrew seems to expand things to a much larger degree and... uh, gives a lot of nuance and a lot of room for interpretation. Not so much room that you lose the very meaning of the story, though. So one thing we can all agree on, that the Genesis account does not present man as merely some highly evolved animal, nor does it present man as an insignificant worm. Man is the highest created being. The psalmist in Psalm 8 celebrates this fact by saying, You have made man only a little lower than God and crowned him with glory and honor. The fall of man did not destroy the image of God, but as Oswald Chambers has said, left man a glorious ruin of what he was originally meant to be. Now, that that man is an animal is seen by the use of the words for animals in the creation account, nefesh, soul, living creatures. That same word is used with reference to the creation of man. The great difference that sets man apart from the rest of the physical order is that God breathes into man the breath of life. The Hebrew term is vayepach. You hear the sound and pach. Man becomes a thing alive. And this, this phrase implies in in the text almost like mouth to mouth resuscitation, more mouth to nose resuscitation. God literally breathes face to face, body to body, so to speak, into Adam. This close up personal impartation of God's very being into the what was previously just a a sculpted statue. That's the word that's used, that that God f- forms man like a, a, a statue and uh, then breathes him his very life into Adam. And, and body plus spirit 
produces soul. So you don't have this dichotomy that you end up with in Greek of spirit, soul, and body with the little, you know, circles and then a circle and then a larger circle and then a bigger circle representing body, soul, and spirit. I mean, that that's okay. But the Hebraic picture is more complicated than that. It's not so distinctly separated. So you don't end up with this Greek idea that really goes off into error that man is just a physical container and his spirit lives in, in the body and it's just kind of the ghost in the machine idea. And that it, it later it ends up with the problem of Gnostic thinking that the body is separate from the spirit realm. So the body is evil because it's physical and the spirit is sacred because it's not physical. You don't have any of that in Hebrew, which is the only theological concept that matters here because God is not anti-body for heaven's sake. And this is important for us to understand with reference to the imagination because uh, the thing that sets us apart from the animal kingdom is our our spirit being. And uh, if you if if we just sink into our body and our appetites and our visceral reactions to things, and we're cut off from the higher intellect, the reasoning capacities, which includes the imaginative though reasoning and imagination are in some ways in kind of opposition to each other. They're really not. Uh, and we'll explain more about that later. Uh, when man is cut off from that, he just becomes like a brute beast. He, this is Romans chapter 1. You know, professing himself to be wise, he becomes a fool, changes the glory of the incorruptible God into images of creatures made with hands. And... Uh, is then given over to all of his unfettered appetites, which is what our culture is now drowning in. But in his unfallen state, man does not know everything. I mean, he he has obviously limitations on his information. He doesn't need to know everything. He knows God and responds to God, spirit to spirit, heart to heart face-to-face, when we say he does not need an imagination, we don't mean it's because he is in possession of all information. He's fully present to the one source of knowledge that does have access to all information and is therefore not broken inside. Unfallen man doesn't have cracks inside that he has to try to figure out and put back together. He's not shattered within. Therefore, there's no need to find language that has metaphor or symbol or ideas with which to fix himself or his relationships or his world. In this, he's truly childlike. See, we tend to speak of a childlike imagination, but really, in some ways, a childlike imagination, though, yes, children are are the offspring of a fallen world, there's more of a simplicity and honesty in un, unfettered, unspoiled, childlike imagination that Jesus is referring to when he says, except you become like a little child, you can't see the kingdom. So what I'm, what I'm referring to here, and I keep moving toward it and then trying to get back to my original notes, but 
there's this struggle, especially in some theological circles, between reason on the one side and imagination on the other. And that very struggle ends up actually being a split between head and heart. And the split between head and heart is one of the great damaging issues uh, that needs to be healed. And when you land on one side or the other, oh, it's all reason, we don't need imagination, or it's all imagination, we don't need reason, well, we just end up gathering under one ditch or another ditch, but either one is a ditch. So David settles the question in Psalm 86, verse 11, when he prays, Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. Gather up all the broken pieces inside of me so that I can give honor and glory to your name. Uh, It might be safe to say unite my heart refers to the imaginative and fear your name could refer to living and walking in, in reason. That's a little too simplistic to divide it like that, but it might help at this initial stage. Psalm 131, he prays a similar thing. He, he says, I love Psalm 131. It's become more precious to me as I've gotten older. He says, I do not take on to myself things that are too great for me, too large for me. I have quieted myself like a weaned child. And even, even fallen man is able to manifest the image of God. And in this word, image, which is, as I've already mentioned, translated from the same word for statue, it's, it's an object made to stand straight up in the sense that he stands upright. Man stands upright. The Greek word for this is anthropos, where we get the word anthropology, which is the study of man. Anthropos literally means, in Greek, a creature who looks up. This is a worshiping creature. But it's also a reasoning creature. It's a creature who is not looking down into his body. He's not looking into his uh, visceral uh, emotionally uh, motivated or appetite-controlled being. He's looking up. David uh, exemplifies this paradox by being the greatest warrior and the greatest worshiper in Scripture. When he stands and, uh, as a warrior, and then up against that, he also simply trusts like a child at the same time. David becomes a man who's has struggled through the weaning process and he's come to a place of trusting and placing himself in the hands of God. Uh, this this battle we have in our imagination and between our ma- imagination and our reasoning, and I'm just introducing it now, we'll get into it in a lot more detail uh, as we go on into further parts of this study, but this, this tug of war is not only between reason and imagination, it's also between the broken parts of our own imagination inside our own head. And the more this battle goes on, the more mentally ill we're becoming. Conversely, the more this battle is quieted and brought to conclusion, not by just simply giving up the fight, but by trusting ourselves in the hands of the only one who understands us, and the only one who can give us the right answers, then we can become, like David, like a weaned child. 
David is implying here that his journey has been first trying to carry things way too big for him, realizing he can't do it. Going through the weaning process means you're giving up things that were your comfort. You're giving up things that you thought you had control of. Uh, A weaned child is a child who's having to give up to the parental guidance that knows better than he does and is bringing him or her to a place of letting go of former things and, and learning to trust and be quiet and trust the parental wisdom that is taking away his comforts in order to bring him to maturity. And in that process, you don't just give up and collapse and say, okay, I'll be like a weaned child. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I, I really am like a weaned child. I am I am free from the, the drivenness and compulsions that made me yell and scream like a, a child who's lost the nipple. And I'm having to learn to rest in higher wisdom and greater uh, goodness than I have command of. And so this is what we go through in our walk with God. So the more mature we become spiritually, the more childlike we become in this this particular manifestation. Now, another reference to this that I just want to mention is Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, which most of us may quote, and we quote, we quote it correctly, but we don't understand it very well. Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has set eternity in the heart of man. Well, it speaks of man as having eternity set in his heart. And this does not mean that man is necessarily seeking God. In fact, it cannot mean that since other scriptures make it plain that there's no one who seeks God. and No one is looking for God. We've all, like sheep, we've all gone astray and turned to our own way. So what is this verse referring to? A better understanding of it is could be amplified like this. God has made all times for a good purpose. And he has placed obscurity of the eternal, an awareness of the eternal, which is not clear, inside the heart of man, awakening in man a hunger, but still it's obscured from man because of his rebellion and his sin, and so he doesn't really understand in his heart what God is doing in the earth. Okay, so this refers to man's lack of the eternal more than the presence of the eternal. His hunger for the eternal in his fallen state. You know, the whole book of Ecclesiastes is about living under the sun. The idea here is this is Solomon's explanation of how meaningless life is without any transcendent supernatural world above the sun. And the imagination is strongly affected by this tug of war that goes on between the awareness of the eternal in man and the fact that his fallen, rebellious nature wants to live out from under the eternal and live under the sun. And this obscures in man the reality of what he's longing for. C.S. Lewis refers to this, he's not referring necessarily to this text, but it brings it to mind in The Weight of Glory when he says in that lecture, one of his greatest, 
that we're like children playing in a mud puddle who have the sound of the ocean in our ears. And uh, we will not give up our mud puddle to go play in the ocean. We'd rather keep what we have total control of than put ourselves into the hands of something so much beyond us that we are uh, at its mercy. So before man fell, he had no need for eternity to be set in his heart. He had no longings, no questions, no obscurity in his soul that would require language that expresses itself in metaphor, mystery, allegory, myth, or symbol and image. He would have no need for understanding or operating in the imagination. But, enter the serpent. In the interaction between the serpent and the woman, we see the devilish plot to pull woman out of her integrated place alongside her husband and under God and pull her over into a place of bentness, which Adam then followed her in, where she's told to conceptualize a different reality from what Elohim had ordained. Now, we can all quote this, and that's one reason why we don't seem to get the juice out of it that we need to. We've become so familiar with it by rote that we really don't get it. So if you'll lay aside your tendency to be bored at, oh, we're going to talk about the snake and the garden and all that, if you'll just lay that aside and think with me, the dialogue is meant to do several things here that we need to look at. Number one, he's, he's, he means to create doubt that God's word is viable and that therefore God is trustworthy. Now, that automatically then does number two. It sets up an alternative false authority, which then sets up an alternative false reality. And this overthrows God, makes Satan a God in God's place, and all this is being done with the help and cooperation of God's image and likeness, God's very child. And it's happening in the physical world where God has given man authority, bringing the physical world into uh, destruction. Then the serpent says, you shall not die. Become divided, separated from your life source. But you shall actually become like Elohim, or the Elohim, the gods, deciding for yourself what is good, tov, and what is evil, hara. So here uh, you have a, a, a disintegration going on that this is true in every temptation. All temptations follow this same path. Try to step away from your tendency to just think you know these things already and, and think with me. This is the formula for betrayal, blasphemy, and idolatry, all in one fell swoop. Doubt God, establish an alternate reality, established under a different authority, which overthrows God sets up a satanic replacement for God, all with human help from God's very own children, thus destroying and disordering and disintegrating the entire physical world. Now, to simplify it, it would be 
trust God and live the tree of life, or choose for yourself how to experience everything from A to Z, or more accurately, from Aleph to Tav. You see, contrary to most of our past learning, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil refers not to merely, okay, here's a good tree, here's a bad tree. That's not that's the way we tend to think of it, but the, the idea here is more like that which produces life is the tree of life, and everything else, living your own way and doing your own thing and deciding for yourself what reality you want things to be, all the way from A to Z. From, from everything else in the whole universe. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. These Hebrew phrases, you shall be as gods, you can decide for yourself what is good versus what is evil, you shall not die, all each of these are filled with huge meaning, which again would take more time than we have to examine But what we want to focus on here are these basic questions as they relate to the formation of our present imagination. We are spending a lot of time laying foundation for the use of the holy imagination. That's our main goal for this study eventually. But the reason we're spending so much time laying the foundation properly is because there is a great danger, a huge danger, in merely encouraging the imagination apart from having a solid foundation first. Because the word for serpent here, nahash in Hebrew, is directly related to the word for divination. The concept of the divine, hear that word divine in divination? This refers to false gods. So divination has to do with divining reality based on the information of divine beings, false gods. The flow of the idea is reject the word of God, which is the foundation of real reality. Devise your own reality in your own terms, which is the definition for insanity. And you will become divine yourself. Then you can divine realities that come from the serpent kingdom. Based on this understanding, you can see why the the Jewish sages not only discouraged the imagination as dangerous, but seemed to totally reject its use for anything good at all. If you only read certain texts, but it's not that simple. Because they turn right around and say things like, the imagination is the greatest gift given to man by God in his fallen state. That is, if understood and engaged in properly. So the sages were saying, the imagination has become a necessary component in the human soul. But it's dangerous because of the the serpent. It's dangerous because the fallen world has now become under the subjection to the serpent's influence, and so has part of our soul, and so or, or all of our soul apart from grace. And so, uh, where do we go to start laying the foundation for moving? In the imagination, well, you go to the the Word. The Word. We must understand both the warning 
and the invitation. The later revelation of the serpent as Hasatan reveals the serpent as the deceiver from the Hebrew verb sata to, de- to deviate or to stray and refers to the satanic design to establish an alternate universe in opposition and competition with the reality of the Creator God. I've repeated that statement over and over until maybe I'm aggravating you by saying it too often, but I want to drill it into our thinking. That sin is not normal. Sin is a deviation from sanity. I know all about that. Anyway, This was the foundation of all pagan false religion, all sexual deviation, occultism, and the human manipulation of others, which is witchcraft. This construct of demonism and false religion was built out of the dark material in the human heart. The broken images in our souls, our relationships, our sexuality, our desires, our imaginings, our experiences, our memories— Our use and misuse of language, which, by the way, is of such vital importance in the Hebrew uh, scriptures that we will take time in a completely separate study on that subject, but it will be a study directly related to this study. But uh, you understand that dealing with the imagination, the fallen imagination— would eventually deal with our waking and sleeping dreams. Later, as a culture developed, it would involve our images and symbols, our language, art and entertainment, advertising, and the modern worship of so-called human idols on such an increasingly worldwide demonic scale that finally results in the worship of the beast and the false prophet at the end of the age. So it's a pretty large subject, uh, not only cosmic subject, but also dealing with our own private lives. But I I tend to do this in almost everything I I try to teach. I think it's vital for us to understand the big picture, the cosmic picture, if we're going to be able to deal with our own private struggles. Because we swim around inside that cosmic conflict. And... uh, to try to be able to sort out your own private struggle without understanding the big picture seems to me ludicrous. Well, the Hebrew mind considers godly reason, the clear, undiluted, non-imagination-oriented word of Yahweh as primary over the imagination. This was uh, the Yitzar Tov, which the, the the inclination for what is good and right. Uh, he has shown you, O man, what is good, Micah 6 says. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? There's no need for uh, imaginative, whimsical commentary on that. He's shown you what is tov, what is good. This is the good of reason, which you recognize is disappearing from our world. When you when you turn away from God, you turn away from the good of reason. I wish we had time to go into detail about the the relationship between the word God in English and the word good. Uh, there's more going on there between God and good than just uh, 
happenstance of linguistics, but we'll get into that when we do the study on the meaning of words and the power of words. It would be expressed, this good of reason would be expressed in statements in Hebrew like the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, or many other phrases that you would find in Proverbs. You should take time, by the way, to thoroughly digest Deuteronomy chapter 4 in its entirety. Study it on your own. I'll only have time to mention some high points here, but in this text, God reminds Israel that when they came out of Egypt, they saw no image, but they heard his voice. They were simply to obey that word, just as their original parents were told to do, Adam and Eve. It was a simple matter of hearing and then obeying, hear and do. The people's response to this command to hear and do was not a sevanishma. We will do and we will hear. Now, notice, that doesn't land well on your English ear, does it? We will do and we will hear. No, it should be we will hear and we will do. No, not a sevanishma. We will do and we will hear. The implication is exactly what Jesus referred to in John 7, verse 17. If anyone does, then he will understand. The Hebrew meaning here is that what you do in obedience, in heart response and obedience and trust, helps you then understand and hear and, and grasp. Embracing this simple, childlike, obedient, trusting heart toward God and His Word makes it then safe to explore the mysteries and potentials of the human imagination, but not before. Chesterton put it this way, A man can stand in only one place, he can fall in every other direction. This statement reflects again that man, in the image of God, stands upright, looks upright. And how does he stand? By doing what he hears, and then he'll hear more. Jesus refers to this also in Mark chapter 4, which I can't take the time to chase, but I just want to refer to it. Mark chapter 3, chapter 4. He Take heed how you hear, for what you hear will be more will be given. But to him who doesn't obey what he hears, it'll be taken away from him even what little he did get. That's just a whole other study in itself. Anyway, the Hebrew commandment to do rather than feel, imagine, desire, abstract, flounder about in a million contradictory ideas. See, this is paganism. This this becomes pagan philosophy and uh, pagan religion. This is uh, in total opposition to the revelation of God through the Torah to the people of Israel. And that revelation was to be communicated by Israel to the world. And uh, thankfully has been wherever there's hearts that are willing to hear it. Now, the function of the imagination is not rejected in Hebrew wisdom. I want to keep stressing this. To be human now, fallen and broken, is to be divided. 
But to be human also is to need to try to put the pieces back together somehow and to communicate, to verbalize, to symbolize. But unlike the pagan divination guided by the serpent, the Hebrew mind will not ever begin with images in the mind. No, the Hebrew mind will not look to any image or any likeness of anything that is in the heavens above or the earth beneath or the waters under the earth or any other creature, but will hear the clear, undiluted word, the Torah of Yahweh. Onto that foundation of holy reasoning then, uh, a safe place can be made for the flow of grace that can sort out the broken images of the human imagination and eventually bring healing that informs a holy imagination. I mean, so we have the we have no imagination, we have broken soul because of sin, we have the formation of human imagination, which is the human unaided attempt to sort out all that brokenness. We have demonic imagination brought in by the serpent. We have the giving of Torah to give a solid place on which to stand. And then we have the prophetic imagination, the poetic imagination, the holy imagination, do you see that progression? Pictures, poetry, concepts, ideas, and feelings in this imagination flow, but they must align with and agree with the word always. This is the Yitzar Tov. Anything else is Yitzar Hara, not the inclination toward the good, but the inclination towards the evil. And evil in Hebrew doesn't mean necessarily the guy with the black hat, although that's included. But the idea of evil is anything that destroys good, anything that disintegrates the good becomes evil. So what's the serpent trying to do to man in this seduction? Well, separate him from the integrated reality of the created order so that he begins to disintegrate both disintegrate both the order which he was given authority over and disintegrate himself man will fall apart and become dissected from god dissected from himself dissected from each other and dissected from the world order or the created order so what result will man's falling for the lie have on his psyche? Man is both losing himself and embracing himself all at the same moment. For instance, he notices himself suddenly as naked. Now, so he's, he's losing himself while he's embracing himself. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 39, he who gives up his low life will gain his high life, the Amplified says it. Um, this is what Adam's doing. He's giving up his high life and embracing his low life. All of a sudden, he's not God conscious. He's self-conscious. And he's not just self-conscious. He's body conscious because all of a sudden, he's aware he's naked. He's losing his high life and grasping his low life. Broken off from himself, then he what does he do? 
He runs and hides when he hears God's voice. He's broken off from God. Then what does he do? He blames the woman. He's broken off from woman, broken off from other humans. Finally, he's driven out of the garden. He loses contact with the very created order. So how does this all affect us now? Well, before the fall, man knew. Man engaged with what was clearly in front of him in existence as it was. But now fallen from that wholeness, he is shredded. He will have to deal with the brokenness of himself and others and the brokenness of the world apart from God. And only God's intervening grace can rescue him. His imagination will be both a dangerous weapon in the hands of evil and a human natural tendency. The imagination only becomes a great gift of God when submitted to the Holy Spirit. So how are we to deal with all of this? Well, we'll spend this whole study answering that question, at least hopefully answering it partially. But in the closing moments that we've got, I want to read to you from the holy imagination of C.S. Lewis. One of the great images in his writing that portrays what happens when an an unfallen Eve on an unfallen planet is approached by a fallen son of earth and he tries to engage her in a conversation. I want you to notice Lewis's spiritually enlightened genius here as he paints for us this picture of her inability to understand Ransom. And Ransom's inability to understand her because her thought processes are not coming out of fallenness and his his are. Let me set up the scene for you. Ransom has been sent by God from the earth to an unfallen planet called Peralandra. His mission, though he doesn't know it yet, is to fight the evil force that has come into the planet in order to bring sin and fallenness into Peralandra. On his trip there, half of his unclothed body was exposed to severe sunlight, and the other half was not, so he finds that he's half red and half white. When he first meets the green lady, who is the Eve of this world, she looks at him and begins to laugh. She laughs until the island she's floating on is taken away by a huge wave. On this planet, these islands are where she lives with her husband, the king. When the island returns close enough for Ransom to speak with her, he calls out to her and says, Is it your will that I swim over to you? I'm a stranger. I come in peace. The green lady quickly looked at him with an expression of curiosity and said, What is peace? Another wave then separates them, and he does not find her again till the next day. She looks him full in the face and says, I was young yesterday when I laughed at you. Now I know that people in your world do not like to be laughed at. You say you were young. Yes. And you are not young today also? She appeared to be thinking for a few moments, so intently that the flowers dropped unguarded from her hand. 
I see it now, she said presently. It's very strange to say one is young at the moment one is speaking, but tomorrow I shall be older than I shall say I was young yesterday. You are quite right. This is great wisdom you're bringing, O piebald man. Piebald means dual-colored. See, she calls him piebald man. What do you mean, he said. Oh, this looking backward and forward along the line and seeing how a day has one appearance as it comes to you and another when you are in it and a third when it has gone past, like the waves. But you are very little older than yesterday, he said. How do you know that, she said. Well, I mean, said Ransom, a night is not a very long time. She thought again and then spoke suddenly, her face lighting. I see it now, she said. You think times have lengths. A night is always a night, whatever you do in it, as from this tree to that is always so many paces, whether you take them quickly or slowly. I suppose that's true, in a way. But the waves do not always come at equal distances. I see that you come from a wise world, if this is wise. I have never done it before. Stepping out of life into the alongside and looking at oneself living as if one were not alive. Do they all do that in your world, Piebald? Well, we know the answer to that question, don't we? We all do that in our world. Then later he says to her, Maladale, which is the name, their name for God. Maladale has sent me to your world for some purpose. Do you know what it is? She stood for a moment, almost like one listening, and then answered, No. Then you must take me to your home and show me to your people. People? I do know, not know what you're saying. Your kindred, the other of your kind. Do you mean the king? Yes, if you have a king, I'd better be brought before him. I cannot do that, she answered. I do not know where to find him. Well, to your own home, then. What is home? The place where people live together and have their possessions and bring up children. She spread out her hands to indicate all that was in sight. This is my home, she said. Do you live here alone? asked Ransom. What is alone? Ransom then tried a fresh approach. Bring me where I shall meet others of your kind. Oh, if you mean the king, I have already told you I do not know where he is. When we were young many days ago, we were leaping from island to island, and when he was on one and I was on another, the waves rose up and we were driven apart. But can you take me to some other of your kind? The king cannot be the only one. He is the only one. Do you not know? But there must be others of your kind, your brothers, sisters, your kindred, your friends. I do not know what these words mean. Who is the king, said Ransom in desperation. He is himself. He is the king. How can one answer such a question? Look here, said Ransom, you must have had a mother. Is, is she alive? Where is she? When did you last see her? 
I have a mother, said the green lady, looking full at him with eyes of untroubled wonder. What do you mean? I am the mother. And once again there fell upon Ransom the feeling that it was not she, or not she only, who had spoken. No other sound came to his ears, for the sea and the air were still, but a phantom sense of vast choral music was all about him. The awe which her apparently witless replies had been dissipating for the last few minutes returned upon him. I do not understand, he said. Nor I, answered the lady, only my spirit praises Maladel, who comes down from deep heaven into the lowness and will make me to be blessed by all the times that are rolling towards us. It is he who is strong and makes me strong and fills empty worlds with good creatures. If you are a mother, where are your children? Not yet, she answered. Who will be their father? Well, the king, who else? But the king had no father. He is the father. You mean, said Ransom slowly, that you and he are the only two of your kind in the whole world? Of course. Then presently her face changed. Oh, how young I have been, she said. I see it now. I had known that there were many creatures in the ancient world, that yours was an older world than ours. I see there are many of you by now. Greet your lady and mother well for me when you return to your own world. He found it difficult to make his next answer. Our mother and lady is dead, he said. What is dead? At this point, Ransom begins to try to teach her about death, and this becomes one of the most painful passages in all of English literature to me. She's only able to interpret it as a good thing, since for her there is no evil and sin and death. Therefore, no words of Ransom is interpreted by her as negative. And in his frustration, he begins to argue more forcefully to help her understand. Oh, said the lady. She turned aside with her head bowed and her hands clasped in an intensity of thought. She looked up and said, You make me grow older more quickly than I can bear. And walked a little farther away from him. Ransom wondered what he had done. It was suddenly borne in upon him that her purity and peace were not, as they had seemed, things settled and inevitable like the purity and peace of an animal, but they were alive and therefore breakable, a balance maintained by a mind and therefore, at least in theory, able to be lost. There is no reason why a man on a smooth road should lose his balance on a bicycle, but he could. There was no reason why she should step out of her happiness into the psychology of our own fallen race, but neither was there any wall between to prevent her from doing so. The sense of precariousness terrified Ransom. But when she looked at him again, 
he changed his wording and then all words died out of his mind. Once more he could not look steadily at her. He knew now what the old painters were trying to represent when they invented the halo. Gaiety and gravity together. A splendor as of martyrdom, yet with no pain in it at all, seemed to pour from her countenance. I hope you will find time to read the entire story on your own. But have you been able to glean from what we've covered so far the fact that the unfallen world has no need of imagination, has no need of image and symbol, has no need of metaphor. For instance, when he says to her, who is the king? And her response is so so perfect. She says, he is himself. How does one answer such a question? You see, in a fallen world where things have been displaced and images have been broken and words have to stand in for other words to try to build a restored image of something that has been marred or, or desecrated, we can say, well, this is like that. And so we use metaphors. In her world, there's no such thing. Why would you ask me who the king is? The king is himself. How do you even answer such a question? It would be like us asking what color is music or how loud is green or blue other nonsensical questions like that. These are nonsensical questions to her. Well, I don't want to labor it. I hope you get it. We're moving from the pre-fallen world where there's no need for imagination through the fallen world where the inner world and all of its relationships are broken off, damaged, destroyed. The broken pieces lying in all directions can either be spliced together by our own fallenness, which just makes another hodgepodge mess, manipulated by the powers of darkness, which creates a temple for evil to dwell, or we can look to God and trust Him by His grace and mercy to enter into our broken places, and by the spirit of revelation and wisdom and knowledge, he can begin to show us the reality behind the broken places and actually begin to bring healing to the broken places, and we begin to see clearly again and accurately again. And so Paul prays for us in Ephesians chapter 1 that God would grant to us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus, that the eyes of our heart will be opened so that we will begin to comprehend with all the saints what is the height, the breadth, the the depth, and the length, that we will come to comprehend, regain our lost understanding of the love of God, which surpasses mere human knowledge in order that we might be restored in our lost relationship, filled with all the fullness of God. 
And later on, when we get to talk about the holy imagination and the true imagination, we'll examine what the imagination in pre-fallen Adam might have looked like, what it might have operated in. Uh, Because though I said there's no imagination in the garden like we think of imagination, there certainly is the function of the holy imagination in the pre-fallen Adam. And we'll talk about that later. Thanks for listening.